All right, if you're able to track down a Bible, let's get to 1 Peter chapter 2 in the uh, blue Bibles that we have here in those chair racks in front of you. You'll find that on page 1048, 1048. I'm going to read just a few verses, um, then we'll pray and we'll get to work. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. Let me read these verses, then we'll pray and we will get to work. It reads like this. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people... But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Let's pray. Lord, as we've opened your word together, we're praying that by your spirit, through your word, you would speak to us. We're praying, God, that you would help us to be your people. Help us to know who who we are because of what you've done, and help us to live productively in this world, live beautifully before a watching world. Help us to do that, please, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're doing a series right now on the local church, and we're looking at who we, who we are. We're looking at certain features of what it is that we do as a church. There are lots of different churches and lots of different ways in which churches organize and conduct the business of the church. And so we're trying to figure out well, what exact and specific calling does God have for us? What are we supposed to do as Park City Church? Why are we here? And we've looked at some bigger picture ideas, and then we've looked at more specific things. We've looked at what do we do when we gather? What does it look like to have a worship team lead us? And what are the thoughts that go into the organization of that part of our gathering? Or what do we do when we open the Word? Why do we do it like this? Why does this dude stand up there and read from the Bible, and why do we do certain things like that? And we've looked at the feature of uh, preaching as well. And then now we're looking at, okay, Well, church isn't just an hour on Sunday morning. If you read through the Bible, you find out that church is a people, and that people actually come together purposefully, but we also scatter. And so we're looking at, well, how do we do that? And what does that look like? How do we, what are the things that we would do when we go away from here? And that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about this idea of being a missional church being a missional church. So I'm going to, in a moment, I'll walk you through the text. I'll show you some features that are helpful when we consider this, but um, let me try to define what I mean first. So missional church is a way in which you design the experience of church so that regular people, meaning not that you're regular, but all of us is what I'm saying, all of us feel commissioned to live out our faith in a productive and meaningful way. Let me contrast it with a more common approach to uh, church ministry. One of the more common approaches is, um, this is more of a traditional model of church, and what you do is you, it's very building-centric. So you have things at a location, 
and it's program oriented. So you design programs that happen at a building and then uh, you try to get people to come to it. One of the mottos is, if you build it, they will come. So you do church thinking, okay, if we can do a good enough job here with the stuff that we uh, create, then all we have to do is get people to come into that experience, and then that'll be how they encounter God in a profound way. And by way of contrast, what we've said is, that's fine, and we'll, we will do certain things like that, but the main emphasis that we will hold as a church is not how do we get good things here and get everyone here. We actually want to think strategically, how do we take all of these people and deputize them and equip and train them and then send them out? Because we got one hour here and maybe a few more scattered throughout the week, but what if 167 hours were being used productively for God's glory? And what if everybody who was a part of our church actually went out and lived their faith out in a profound way? And that's the kind of church that we have embraced from the very, very beginning. In fact, I remember we, we first started over at um, Hawksview Restaurant, right there on the corner. It used to be that, that restaurant there. And it was February of uh, 2017, and we launched accidentally we launched publicly somebody wrote an article about it we we're like we're gonna have our practice service and all these people showed up and uh, so we accidentally launched and there were some people there and after service I was having a conversation this is this is my stupidity I'll show you in just a minute so I'm having a conversation with somebody and I'm telling them I'm trying to just share my heart like here's the kind of church we want to be uh, I will get very very excited when the people from our church are living out their faith in real time. And we're actually going out there and we're reaching people who are far from God. And I said this, I said, I'm not too interested in getting a bunch of Christians from other churches to attend our services. And um, what I meant by that was, there are so many Christians out there that become disgruntled. They're like, I don't like my church. I'm going to go to the new one because it's hip and cool. So let's check that one out. And maybe that'll be the new place where I land. And I was telling them, I'm not interested in that. I don't want a bunch of, you know, disgruntled Christians coming from their churches that they hate and coming over here, and then we grow just because we're new. Uh, and also, and I'll say this now, but I was like, you know, one of my thoughts here as well is I'm also not interested in, uh, you know, not just being hip and cool, which, uh, you know, new things have that tendency, but another way in which this one's a little bit closer, this, this might sting a little bit, but there are some older people who are like, we got to get back to the glory days. And so they leave churches because they don't like drum kits and they don't like loud stuff or smoke or lights. And they're like, we want to get back to the glory days. So maybe Park City could be like that for me. And uh, all of that, as I was saying in this conversation, I'm not too interested. No surprise, that dude didn't show up again. He was like, fuck. <laughs> he, he got that one loud and clear. Um, and I wasn't very thoughtful about it, but still, I think it needs to be said as we're running out of chairs, like we're not trying to just attract people from other churches to come in here and fill this place up. We're trying to help you understand what God has done and then send you out. And it'll be very, very exciting as that is happening because we go to so many different places every single week. So we want to be a missional church, and today we're talking about living on mission. Well, let me show you from the text three things that we'll need to be able to do this well. Number one, in order to be effective at doing life on mission, you need a radical gospel identity. A radical gospel identity. Secondly, what we need 
is a um, comprehensive ministry of proclamation. Comprehensive ministry of proclamation. And finally, we need missionary intentionality. We'll take them one at a time. Here we go. First off, you need a radical gospel identity. And what I mean by that is if you are going to do this, you need to know who you are. If you're going to do this in a way that is fruitful and sustainable, you need to understand what God says about you. Because at the end of the service today, I will say something like this. I will say, you are not dismissed, you are sent. And you'll hear that and you'll be like, ooh, that's fun. Like, I like that. And you'll go out and you'll leave through those double doors and then you'll get in your car and all of a sudden you'll start thinking, what does that look like? Should I be doing that? I'm not sure I should be the one doing this thing. And you will start to have concerns about, well, what does he even mean when he says that? And how do I do this? In order to be effective at living out your mission, you need to know who you are. You need to have an identity that is informed by the good news of the gospel so that you can march out of here with gospel confidence, knowing God can use me in profound ways. Look at the text here in verse 9. It describes the reality of this church in grandiose terms. Verse 9 reads like this, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. What Peter is saying here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is absolutely surprising. Because the church, if you read 1 Peter and 2 Peter, he's writing to a group of believers who are scattered across Asia, and they're experiencing incredible persecution. They're afflicted. They, they look like a hot mess. They're, they're trying to figure out, how do we survive? And Peter writes to them, and, and if you were to visit one of their services, you would think, these guys are in trouble. But Peter says, here's who you are. You need to know something about what God has done for you. Here's your identity. You are a chosen people. You, you are a people that have received the mercy and the grace of God. You are a royal priesthood. You look at a bunch of disheveled individuals trying to figure out how do we just manage life, and the Holy Spirit says, you're royalty. You are, you are a royal priesthood. You are mediators between this creator and his creation. It is the highest and most dignified calling that exists, and that's you. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people who are bearing the, the, the reality of God, the holy, holy, holy God. And you, you are that. And he's saying that of this, this people here. And then he says, and listen, you're God's treasured possession. He owns it all. It's all his. It belongs to him. He rules over it. But he looks at you and he says, that, that is my treasure. So this word of affirmation here is the word of identity. And he's saying, here's who you are. You have a privileged status with God through the work of Christ. You are these things, not because you're so awesome in your own ability and giftedness. You are this because of what Christ has accomplished. That's what chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 is all about. It's about how the Lord himself has accomplished this, and by doing so, he has made a people to be this. Verse 10 says, You once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He's quoting from the book of Amos, but he's saying of, a, of this group, of this church, he's saying, you were like 
the people who were outside of the covenant promises of God. You were, you were foreigners to the reality of what God is doing, but now you've been brought in. Once you were not a people, and now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we have this identity, and this identity is given. It is bestowed. It is not achieved. It is the identity that we receive by faith in Christ. God looks at us, and he says, here's who you are. And you need to get this down to the level of belief in your soul, because if you get that, then all of a sudden you have gospel confidence. And you march out of here with a, with a gospel swagger, not because you're arrogant or proud or anything like that, but because you realize what I have is on account of what Christ has done. And now I can go out with those marching orders to be, to be sent in his name with his authority to proclaim the goodness of what he has done. But without it, without it, we're a shaky people. We're an uncertain people. We, we feel unclear. We're like, I don't know if I should be doing this. I don't know if I have the giftedness to pull this thing off. So we need this identity first off so that we can go out and do things productively. Now, um, this is a lesson that I'm personally working on for myself, just trying to figure out, well, how does, how does this thing work? And there are a lot of times where I do experience self-doubt. And uh, like, for instance, I'll give you one. Um, there are times where I talk to God about the fact that I'm not a talker. Like, if you hang out with me in any other setting from here, I don't even talk. So my neighbor's here. She could probably affirm that. Like, I think I've heard him talk, like, two words. In fact, one of my neighbors said, I saw you on TikTok. That's the most I've ever heard you talk. <laughs> so a lot of times I'll deal with God, and I'll go, God, I don't talk. And when I do, it's weird. Like, I'm a grammatical disaster, and I say things in a way that's weird, and I can't even put together normal sentences, and why, why am I the dude that has to stand up here? And I'm reminded of God's conversation with Moses, where he said, Moses had a similar conversation. He says, I'm not great at this thing, and God says, who made your mouth? So God was saying, I'll, I'll give you exactly what you need. But there are moments of self-doubt where I need to be reminded of my identity, and when I get it, it's like a light coming on. It's like, oh yeah, this is the reality of who I am because of what Christ has done. Now I can go out in his name productively. Now, everybody is doing this, by the way. Alan Noble wrote a little book called um, Disruptive Witness, and he pointed out this is the human experience. We are all trying to justify our existence. He calls it something fancy. It doesn't matter what he calls it, but the, the idea is all of us go through life, and we're trying to prove I matter. I belong here. I'm supposed to be here. I'm doing something productive in this world. And having an identity actually helps us untangle that in a way that's healthy and productive. But when you're unclear of your identity, it becomes a problem. I'll, I'll give a couple different examples. So when I used to do student ministry, um, there were some students who their parents told them, you have to get good grades. They came to believe that. They thought, you know, I got to get a 4.0, and I got to get these scholarships, and I got to go to university, and then I can get a real job, and then I can be a, a real productive individual. And so they would work very, very hard because that's a part of their identity. They're striving after, you know, proving their, that they, you know, their existence matters, and they're doing it via their education. So they would have all A's, but if they got a B, 
their world is over, right? It's like everything comes crashing down around them. And I was like, man, that is weird. Because for me, I was a horrible student, and I could get a C or a D. I could get an F. It didn't phase me. All I cared about was making sure I could advance to the next grade level and move on with life. So for me to hear somebody feel like their life is falling apart, if they get a B, is weird. But all of us have these little things that we're going, my identity is bound up with this. And if this doesn't go well, my life is not right. That is importing something that's not meant to be there in the way in which we consider our identity. What we need to be able to do is to back up and go, no, my fundamental identity is what God has done for me in Christ. And when that shoe drops, when that clicks and you go, okay, this is true, then stuff in life and the circumstances of of life and what these guys are experiencing with persecution and hostility or just the difficulty of life itself, when you have that gospel identity, it changes how you relate to the world. So my students, they dealt with grades, but for me, it was skateboarding. I was pretty good at it. And I got a sponsorship, and I was asked to do some contests. And um, I did a contest in Rockford and a contest in Janesville, back-to-back. And I crumbled under pressure, and I got last place in both. And then somebody that I loved said something about skateboarding that was very dismissive of, like, it's stupid anyways. And I was like, that's my world, right? That's my world, and I'm doing this to prove that I matter, and everyone's doing this. By the way, so you need this at, your, at the level of your soul, but also as you go out, this is what we're doing. We're helping people realize that they've been made by God and for God. You're, you're doing, the reason why I'm spending time here is because what I'm asking you to do is this. Help people see that they were made for something greater than their petty ambitions. Grades or skateboarding or money or whatever the case might be, their vocation, their popularity, they were made for something so much better. And in Christ, we have this beautiful, beautiful gift. So how do we get this identity? How do we get this incredible identity? I'm going to give you three things. One's the main thing, and then two, two that are under this heading. The, how you get this, I mean, think about what we're doing right now. You're at a church. The word is being preached. There's a Bible maybe nearby you at least um, or up on the screen, and and you're hearing what God has said, and it's being applied to you. That's how you get it. It is the word of God being applied to you. So we need that, and specifically what we need is the beauty of the gospel to be proclaimed to us. So we need to hear, this is what God has done in Christ, and this is the new status that I have, and it's privileged. I didn't earn this thing. I don't deserve it. It's mercy. This is what God has done, and it makes me a part of this community that's described as chosen and royal, a priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. I need that. I need the the work of the gospel applied to myself. And the way in which I'm going to receive that, I'm going to give you two ideas here. The first is you actually have to put yourself in environments where you're going to hear that, meaning you got to show up to church. You got to show up to places where this Bible is going to be applied to you. You need to come to the gathering to hear your identity rehearsed over and over again. 
when we were first starting out, we had some leaders that they, they heard me talk about missional church, and they're like, we should do that thing that some churches do, where, you, where uh, it's creative, and in, you, know, you come together, and instead of having a Sunday morning service, you do this thing called the church has left the building. And everyone goes out, and they find different projects that they can work on, and we, we really emphasize that we want to be out there doing things. And I, I heard what they were saying, and I get you know, I've been a part of some of those planning meetings for those kinds of events and services. But, but my pushback was, I don't disagree with you that we should do things to try to emphasize how important it is, but that diminishes what can happen on a Sunday morning. I said, we don't, we don't have any problem leaving the building. We do it every week, right? That's just something we do. Um, what we have a problem with is understanding what Christ has done. And so we need to come together so that we could hear the word communicated to us in such a way where we see, here's what the Lord has done in the sending of his son. Here's what that means for me. Here's this reality that makes me a new creation so that I could go out and serve the world in the strength that he supplies, not in my own giftedness. So it's not an either-or thing of you can go to church or you can be the church. It's both. And in fact, it must be both. You have to both gather and scatter if you want to be healthy. There are some churches that only emphasize scattering and their efforts become superficial, and I think you guys can, can understand that, that if you don't have this identity behind it, it's not going to last very long and it's not going to make much of an imprint. But there's another way that's unhealthy as well, and that's if you just gather. You only gather and you never think about how we can get out of here and go do something for God's glory. And that becomes a toxic environment. It's like a bunch of blessing of fresh water coming into something, and we just try to contain it. We're blessed to be a blessing. We're supposed to be a, a channel or a conduit of God reminding us of who we are so we can go out and help other people know what he's done for them. But if you just try to contain it, it becomes stagnant and toxic. In fact, when I was a, a child, I got violently ill from water, stagnant water. I got a, a virus called Jardia, and I almost died because I, I contracted something and I became dehydrated and feverish and I was hospitalized because it got so bad. Some churches are like that, where you, it's stagnant. It's only about us. Like, forget them. Forget what's going on out there. We just got to protect our crew. But God is saying, you, got, you have to gather so you can hear what Christ has done, and then you have to scatter so you can make his work known. So you need the gathering and the scattering to be healthy. The other thing you need is other Christians. What I'm talking about here with this idea of identity, it, it, we, we forget this stuff. I don't care how long you've been a Christian or how many messages you've heard on identity. This stuff fades away fast. Like it comes into your heart and you're like, yeah, that sounds great. And you ha might have a season of gospel confidence where you really feel that you are loved by God and you're his special possession. And then it fades. And then you start trying to perform and you start trying to earn God's favor again. So you need other Christians who can help you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Nazi Germany. And uh, as a young man, he was martyred for his faith, for resisting the Nazi agenda. And uh, he wrote a bunch of incredibly beautiful and helpful things. But one of the things he wrote was a little treaty on life together, on spending time with other believers. And this is what he says on I believe we'll have it up on the screen as well. Bonhoeffer puts it like this. He says, the Christian 
needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belaying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. And that also clarifies the goal of all Christian community. They meet one another as bringers of the message of salvation. Some of you have this blessing. It's the blessing of Christian community. And you lean into it, and it is medicine for your soul. You forget what God has done in Christ, but you come around one another, and you are built up, and your faith is encouraged in those moments. And we need that. We need to be reminded of what God has done in Christ because we need this radical gospel identity. The second thing that we find here is what I'm calling a comprehensive ministry of proclamation. What we're supposed to do is comprehensively go out and proclaim the good news of what Christ has done. Look at this in the second half of verse 9. It reads like this, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So you have this identity in order that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So you might think, oh, so what you're talking about, Core, is a worship service. Not exactly. That's a part of it for sure, but, but a worship service alone does not accomplish what is being communicated here. There are worship services that miss the mark. In the book of Malachi, God does an evaluation for a service. He says, this one's not good. Like you're doing certain things, it looks good, you've got different stuff going on, but it's half-hearted, and you're also not affected by it. You're supposed to have lives that match this worship experience, and that's not happening. And God says, I wish you would just shut that one down. Like take that off the calendar, because this isn't pleasing to me. So we're not just talking about a worship service, because we recognize that's not enough. Here, here's what's going on here. He's saying, you, you are this royal reality. You are this people with this incredible identity for this purpose, that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. The Greek word there is evangelo. It means, the, the definition, there are three entries, I'll read them. It means to tell out or speak forth, to declare abroad, divulge or publish, to make known by proclamation, praise, and celebration. All three of those have a public component to it. You are supposed to make known what Christ has done. You are supposed to publish this thing. You are supposed to speak it out. So what do I mean? We are a people with a gospel identity that depart from here week by week, publishing his praises. So we go away from here, and I could, I could spend a lot of time on this. I won't. I'll just give you a couple examples. Some of you work in the healthcare industry, and you're going to go to work this week. But if you're doing this missional church, life on mission kind of stuff, it means you're going in the name of Christ. And you're going to interact with coworkers. You're going to interact with administration. You're going to interact with patients. You're going to interact with family members of those patients. You're going to inter interact with an awful lot of people. But if you're doing this, it means that you're going out there and you're publishing the praises of your Savior. And it can look different person to person. I'll spend a minute on, on that here shortly. Um, but you're doing that 
purposefully. Your publishing is praises. Some of you guys own small businesses, and that means you deal with vendors, and you deal with customers, and you deal with staff, and you deal with all these different people, but you're doing it now for the glory of Christ, publishing the praises of your Savior. And that changes. That changes your agenda. It changes everything that you do. It changes how you think about your vocation and your calling. I could go on and on and on. We've got educators. We've got people in various industries. We've got all, all... What I'm saying is, what if... I mean, just use your imagination for a moment. What if everyone sitting in here said, I'm going to leave from church every week, and I'm going to publish the praises of my Lord? Game on, right? Game on. That just changes the dy- dynamic of what church is about, and uh, it's quite, quite exciting. Here's a caution, though. A lot of times as we do this, we, we want to try to get it into a box. We want to go, okay, core, I'm with you. What do I say? Like, just tell me, like, give me a script. Like, if I'm going to go to work, what should I say tomorrow? Uh, give me, like, three things I could say. Or we'll say, okay, well, why don't we all go out and do this thing together? And we'll try to make it a program, which is kind of the tendency of Christian ministry. We want to program it. We want to plan it, put it on the calendar, get it done, check it off. The thing is, what I'm talking about is wild. It's, it's unmanageable. Because if we're all going to do this, it's going to look different person to person, depending on your temperament, d- depending on your giftedness, depending on all kinds of different things. Let me give you an example from Leslie Newbegin. He was a, a missionary to India from, from uh, I think, from Britain. He, he uh, served there. He came back to Britain. He wrote a lot on the fact that we now need a missionary encounter in Western culture. America needs the gospel. Great Britain needs the gospel. So he recognized, like, what was on the mission field was great, but he came back and he said, oh, we need this too. Like, we need to re-evangelize these places. But he tells a story, and I think it's a really great story. Uh, he, he talks about a village where a lot of people became believers in Christ. And so he, ba- he just kind of, you know, reverse-engineered it. He said, how did that happen? And he went through all these different chapters, and he said, the story unfolded in four different chapters. And he said, the first chapter was they had something break down, and they had to send for an engineer because they didn't have somebody in their village that could do it. They sent for an engineer, and the engineer shows up to make this repair, and he, throughout the interactions, lets them know that he's a Christian. And then he does his job. And the connection that they make is a Christian does good work. That's it. Then the guy leaves never to be seen again. The second chapter, one of the villagers goes to another village and finds a Christian bookstore. And the uh, Christian bookseller says, you should take this. This is the book of, this is the gospel of Mark. And I want to encourage you to take this back, read it with some friends. Uh, I think that that would be good for you. So gospel of Mark comes back. They start reading it together. Um, It's affecting them in different ways. But chapter 3, an evangelist shows up, somebody who, you know, travels place to place to proclaim what Christ has done. The evangelist shows up and preaches a fiery sermon. Repent. He calls these people to repent, and he tells them what they need to do. And they're aware of Christianity now. They've got a couple different touch points for that. But all of a sudden they go, this is far more serious than we thought. So we better figure this thing out. So chapter 4 is, know that a nearby town has a church. And so they say, can you, can you send anyone? Help us out here. We're trying to figure this thing out. 
And that church says, yeah, actually, we got somebody who was just injured and is now unemployed, and we can send them to you for a prolonged period of time. So this fourth individual comes in, spends a month with them, and explains the good news of the gospel, and a majority of the village becomes believers in Christ. Okay, here's what Newbegin says. This is the quote. The point of the story is obvious. If you had assembled the engineer, the bookseller, the evangelist, and the unemployed spiritual leader for a seminar on missionary methods, they would have probably disagreed with each other, perhaps violently. Unknown to each other, each had done faithfully the work for which the Holy Spirit had given equipment. The strategy was not in human hands. It is the Holy Spirit who is the primary missionary. Our role is secondary. Do you see what Newbegin was pointing out? When you start to live this thing out, there's going to be a variety of different ways that it comes true. Some of you will street preach. Some of you do that. Some of you will go to public events and you'll have purposeful conversations with people to try to interact with them around the, the message of Christianity. Some of you will simply go to work tomorrow and you'll clock in and you'll, you'll do your job. And all of that matters. And for us or myself to stand up here and say, well, all of us need to do evangelism like this and you all need to do these different three things, that would be inappropriate. The truth is God has all of us on his team and he's deputizing us and sending us out so that we might make known the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light in an infinite variety of ways. And that's a beautiful thing. Here's the last point. We need intentionality, verses 11 and 12. If we're going to do this, we have to be intentional. We have to think through how this actually applies to every area of life. I'll move quickly through this one. These are verses 11 and 12. We have to be intentional with ourselves, and then we have to be intentional with the effect that we have to the public. First off, we have to be intentional with ourselves. There's an enemy. He hates our guts. He doesn't want us to do this at all. He'd love for you to keep your Christianity contained to an hour on Sunday. He doesn't want you doing this. You also have sinful desires in you that he can leverage to make you ineffective. That's what verse 11 is talking about. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, again, it's your identity. Here's who you are. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God. You are a foreigner and an exile. I'm urging you to embrace that identity and to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. There are things in you that if you are inattentive to, that will dominate your life. Not the calling that God has for you, but the sinful desires that you're allowing to wage war against you. So if you're going to be productive at this thing, you have to, you have to get to work. One of the Puritan uh, authors, John Owen, he put it like this. He says, you need to kill sin or it'll kill you. But if you're going to do life on mission, know this. You have sinful desires in you that you must be waging war against. Otherwise, you will be incredibly uh, not effective. Here's what James says. One of the, one of the other biblical authors, he, he asks a question of a church that's in conflict, and he says, what, what causes those things among you? What causes the fights and the quarrels? Don't they come from your desires? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. And he's saying, this, this, is, what, this is what happens. Um, I had a conversation this week, and somebody said, um, you know, if 
it was put like this. I'm going to say it two different ways. If people were on mission, they'd stop fighting so much, which is true. Like if we're out there doing the work of the Lord, we're far less likely to fight. But here's how the enemy turns it around. He says, I don't want them out there. Let me keep them busy fighting. And so what we need to recognize is that we have these sinful desires within us that are waging war against our souls. And this stuff is important. We have to be willing to do the hard work of being intentional with our own desires. And we have to put these things to death. Secondly, we need to be intentional with how we come across to a watching world. Look at verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. It's saying live so beautifully that even though you have accusers, and you will, think about this. We're following a Savior who was perfect. And what did they do? They accused him of all kinds of ill. If he was actually perfect and still accused, what do you think is going to happen to us in our imperfections? They've got all kinds of ammunition. They've got all kinds of things that they can point to and say, look look at you. But our job is to be intentional, examining our lives and choosing to do things in such a way that, that it comes across as beautiful. Live beautifully before the watching world. Live such good lives that though you're accused of doing wrong, they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Live in such a way. Be making conscious choices over and over and over again. How does this make the beauty of Christianity more or less attractive? What I'm doing, does it commend Christ to people, or does it distract them from the beauty of the gospel? Be intentional with every choice that you're making, recognizing that you are commissioned by Christ himself to be his ambassador in the world. Here's just, I put some notes down here. When you show up to work, be the most industrious employee. Be the one that everyone looks at and they go, that person will get the job done. They're incredibly productive and helpful. Be the most encouraging. There's a, there's a famine of encouragement in our world. Well, why not choose to be the people who are always speaking truth and love to people and building them up? Be the most encouraging. Be people of integrity, people that can be counted upon no matter what, even if people aren't looking. Be trustworthy. Be a good friend. There are all kinds of things that we can do. We just have to be intentional. And if we do that, then people will see Christianity actually affects real life. Therefore, maybe it's relevant. And they will at least glorify God on the day that he visits. But in the meantime, we ought to be living very purposefully so that people are making that conclusion in advance. We don't just want them to glorify God when he visits. We want them to glorify God now. So live with gospel intentionality. As we wrap up here, let me just remind us of where we've been. On account of Christ, you are a new creation. You have an incredible identity in him. You are chosen and beloved. You are a royal priesthood. You have the highest and most dignified calling ever. You are a holy nation. You are God's treasured possession. We have this because of what Christ has done, and he invites us to receive it, and we need it to affect our hearts. We're called then to make this proclamation public, to declare his praises everywhere that we go. Therefore, we need to be intentional and live our lives with gospel intentionality for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we're asking that you would help us to be your faithful people. We're praying, Lord, that you would help us to embrace this beautiful identity that you've given us.
that is um, bestowed upon us. We can't achieve this thing. We're not going to earn this thing. Help us to live into the beauty of what you've done in the sending of your son. Help us to proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into your wonderful, wonderful light. And help us to live intentionally for your glory. We pray in your name. Amen.